Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We continue on our visit today. Dr. Rick Durst, he, of course, is with Gateway Seminary, and he served there as not only uh, the director of the Fremont campus, uh, but continues to be a professor of historical theology, and uh, will be splitting his time between Northern California and the Southern California campus, as well as doing more writing. And uh, with us today, the newly appointed executive director of the Fremont campus of Gateway Seminary, Max Stabenow. We've been talking a bit about some of the research uh, delivered by uh, George Barna, Pew Research as well, in terms of the faith of young people today and um, some of the challenges that it is posing before the church. And I think as we sort of begin to, to draw a conclusion to all of this, gentlemen, um, the, the good news is that we've got plenty of hope that we, we serve, unlike a lot of other religions, a God that's not dead but alive. Christianity not based on mythology, but rather on verifiable history, and that our our life faith experience can be borne out experientially, certainly, but that there's so many other pillars upon which we're able to lay the foundation of our faith experience and our faith walk. The challenge, of course, today to the church is the willingness to be bold enough to preach the gospel, to preach the faith truth in in love and and with a sense of of passion and compassion. Um, I'm going to give you both an opportunity to sort of bring this all home as we look at some of this research and we look at the challenges that 20-somethings are facing. They've maybe been raised in the church. They start to question when they get into their early 20s. Some stay. A lot of them leave. Some will then go on, get married, start to have kids of their own and want their children to have a faith experience and therefore come back to the faith of their childhood. Um, but they're certainly not in the kinds of numbers that we would like to see. Um, certainly, the younger a person comes to faith in Christ, the greater the likelihood is that they will stay in their faith experience, sort of building layer upon layer, precept upon precept, right? Um, but I would imagine, too, and you touched on this, Dr. Durst, in one of the previous segments, the foundation of discipleship based on proper theological understanding that is born out of discipleship, biblically-based discipleship, study of God's Word, is the key. And it's almost the hinge pin upon which all of this rotates. Uh, one of the things that I like in discipleship is giving people permission to ask me questions. Part of that is, Rick, where... Where are you reading the Bible? Where did you read today? What did, what did God say to you? And what are you doing about what he said? Those kind of accountability questions make it healthy for me. You know, what are you praying about? How are you praying? So I want my faith to be current. I want it to be tested. Because it always, you know, God's word always proves true. His way is perfect. That doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's often a sacrifice. But his way is perfect. It's in his hand. He knows where he's headed. And so any... I like the tough questions. Like uh, we've said earlier, 
it, my answer doesn't always come out with finesse, but it's worth the struggle. And God's word is so able uh, to raise the issues of life that we're facing today if we'll just look into it. Is it important, too, to also recognize that this is process? Uh, Paul talked about working out your salvation, uh, this notion that there is the awareness of sin. You touched on this earlier, Max. Um, and then the acknowledgement of need of salvation. And then once that salvation has taken place, our name is in that moment written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, that the sanctification process begins. And sometimes we'll be two steps forward or three steps backwards, but that it is a process that's sanctification. And so along the way, if we have questions, if doubt comes up, that's okay, provided that we're going back to the Word and staying in the Word to find the answers. Yeah, I think what you've described in part is the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus said that all authority has been given to him. He's our king. He's the one who's sending us out. Uh, He said that we're to go, so we're to look for people who are uh, in need, look for people who are made in God's image, and we're to teach them. That roots us back into the scriptures. We're to teach them all that Christ has commanded. And uh, the first commandment is to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, and the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so the Great Commission is what we are to be about. And I would suggest that uh, if we're lost or we're not sure what to do, if we start there, then God will use that to reorient and reorder everything. And that Great Commission, that Great Commandment, um, is not something that's exclusively or singularly placed on the shoulders of the pastor. You mentioned earlier, let's not make this about the major failure of the institutional church or even necessarily say that pastors have failed us in the pulpit. The people in the pews, I mean, that great commission and great commandment, we each and every individual that name Jesus as Lord and Savior are held accountable for that, aren't we? That's right. And uh, it's a privilege to be uh, enlisted in God's service. When you recognize that he has rescued you from your sin and you get to now spend whatever remaining life that he has for you in his service, um, that's an honor and that's a joy and a privilege that we take for granted. Uh, we, don't, we, we tend to make our salvation only about us, but our salvation is also to be a blessing to others. And um, if we could get back to that, I think we would see the Reformation or the revival that we've been mentioning. And and sharing the gospel and discipling is too important to leave it to the pastor. You know, uh, Luther, he talked about the priesthood of the believers. And he believed that every person who came to faith in Christ, who was baptized in his name, you're not just a pew sitter, you're a priest. You have a work to carry out. You know, and the job of the priest is to take people to the Lord and bring the Lord to people. And that takes discipleship. Uh, Can I throw out a quick commercial for the Bay Area Sunday School Conference coming up? uh, Please do so. All right. Uh, There's a a ton of great workshops. My workshop is going to be on the nine universal questions, the nine questions that people everywhere ask. What's going to happen to me when I die? Um, Is there truth that can guide me in life? So nine universal questions and how biblical teaching, doctrine, if you will, connects right with those questions and gives wonderful sound answers. So encourage you to come out for that. And that'll be coming up at the uh, the annual Bay Area Sunday School Convention, well, hosted as always uh, at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. And uh, the dates are going to be the first Thursday, Friday, 
and Saturday of March, which will be March 5, 6, and 7. Details available on the web at bassconvention.org. That's bassconvention.org. Before we go, Dr. Durst, 30 seconds for people that want to go deeper in their faith walk. Perhaps they feel a real leading to some serious aspect of ministry, either full or part-time. Uh, tell us a little bit about what is available at Gateway Seminary. Well, we teach courses, courses in Old Testament, New Testament, uh, preaching, uh, counseling. I teach theology and church history. We have practical theology courses as well. Uh, there's a wonderful course that's on Saturdays in counseling. Uh, and we, I, I'll just give an open invitation. If you want to find out what seminary is like, just come. Sit in on my class. You'd be a welcome guest. And, and the good news is that with so many schools that have left the Bay Area, we're so thrilled that uh, Gateway, formerly, formerly a Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, is staying right where she's planted, on roots here in the Bay Area. We're thrilled for that. Congratulations to you, Max, on the new position as executive director. And um, for folks that want to get more information, take you up on your offer, Dr. Durst. Absolutely. Check them out on the web at gs.edu. That's GS for Golden for Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. All right, we're going to take a time out. I want to thank Dr. Rick Durst for being with us, along with um, Max Stabenow for being with us in studio tonight. We'll take a time out, get you updated on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center, the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If I describe to you an environment where there's nothing but turmoil, tension, stress, seemingly every moment you can rarely capture a, a nanosecond of peace when everybody seems to be getting along, there's yelling and fighting and doors being slammed and arguments going on and kids acting out, misbehaving. And it goes sometimes even beyond the behavior in the home to the behavior in the school. It's destructive behavior. It's behavior that might include association with gangs. And one too many telephone calls either made to or received from the police department. Growing numbers of families, particularly so in the inner cities, are experiencing the challenges of parenting in the 21st century. But does that necessarily mean that you give up hope? Well, certainly the answer is no. But then the other question becomes, how do you go about gaining the necessary skills to raise a challenging child in challenging times? You know, oddly enough, when you think about all the life skills necessary and the important tasks that you'll ever engage in in the totality of your life, whether you might be the president of an important bank, run your own corporation, whatever it might be, you'll do nothing more important then raise kids and prepare them to become successful adults in life, both in the terms of the way the world measures success, family, having a home, having a good job, and most importantly, from a spiritual standpoint. All that said, don't you wish they came with manuals? Isn't it be nice if once the doctor says, congratulations, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones, here's your, your bouncing new baby boy and girl, and here's a copy of the manual, And <laughs> but it just doesn't work that way, does it? But in fact... There are insights available, and there are tools and resources that are out there that if you're already a parent dealing with that messy situation I described a moment ago, there are places that you can go to learn the necessary skills, not with the idea of changing your kids, but changing you 
first and foremost. And as you change, then God in turn can work through you to see a life change in those kids. Joining me now in studio is Vern Tyler, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones down through the years. For many, many years, he and his lovely wife, Judy, ran Hosanna Homes, and now they've they've taken a new direction in terms of, of ministry. It's now called Hosanna Pathways, and it really comes down to, uh, Vern Tyler, equipping parents with the kind of skills that they really need to become successful at parenting. And it's so desperately needed. Um, we, uh, over the years, of course, Judy and I have uh, foster parented over 800 kids, so we had a pretty extensive experience. Uh, our three biological children and our uh, uh, grandchildren, um, and thankfully, uh, half of those children, or half the children, and half my grandkids now are in full-time ministry. Wow. So, um, you know, God has been very gracious with the Tyler family and has given us some direction with regard to ministry, and I think it's been very effective. So we're trying now to kind of migrate away from the foster care side and uh, provide support for families that need to learn parenting skills. There has to be something that uh, down through the years you and Judy learned in uh, helping to uh, to rear uh, over 800 kids along with your own three biological children um, that can be passed on to other parents out there, many of whom say, you know, I've, I've tried everything, and it just seems to be a battle of the wills, and it runs the gambit. It can be the the misbehaving, back-talking five-year-old or the 18-year-old who does nothing but slam doors and get in trouble with the police. And, Craig, you know, I think the environments in which we're raising our children, I'm going to say both the church and the family, we don't understand the significance of um, our behavior, what we expect of our children. Uh, So in the end, in the process, our children are very confused. They don't see the reality of their faith. Um, It's a very shallow experience. But I see in families, we turn to professionals. We don't think that we can handle some of these things on our own, so we're missing some of the basics. Even in churches, the majority of churches, particularly your megachurches now, children's church, I think, has been the worst thing in the modern church that has ever happened because we separate families. Children go to their church. Adults go to their church. I find it amazing, just this last year, in our church, we had a Sunday where we had all of the teachers and everybody take a leave of absence, if you will, and bring all the children into the congregation. It was very peaceful. But the amazing thing that I saw was after the church, I was wanting to greet some of these families that were around me and encourage them and say, you know, how uh, grateful I was to see them sitting as a family in main church. And I wanted to introduce myself to those children that were around they didn't even know how to introduce themselves to me. They look up at their parents and say, what do you do? And here I have my hand extended. This is the confusion that's out there. These are the things that when we wonder why 70, 80% of our kids leave within a short period after graduation, uh, because they're not invested. They have not experienced something. Well, and there's a point, too, that you make. You, you made comment a moment ago, Vern, about... Uh, uh, the notion of what what 
we as parents expect of our children. And if, if I were to poll everybody listening right now and say, you as mom, you as dad, what do you expect of your children? They would come off with a laundry list immediately. Do your homework, get to school on time, be respectful, don't talk back, be honest, gone on, on the list goes. We never take the time to ask ourselves a more important question, and that is what do our children expect of us? And one of the, the issues I think here is, is we were raised as, uh, our parents raised us with a so-called issue of quote-unquote control. Parents are expected to control their children. And one of the things that I work with very closely or, or very uh, emphasized very, very strongly with a parent project is we don't control children. We control their things. Now, that distinction has to be developed. I can't do that necessarily here on the radio, but the idea is uh, if you try to control children, you're going to be punitive in nature. That just seems to be the automatic way that you go. And I think deep down at a certain point, parents begin to realize you really can't control them. That's right. It's a feudal process. And at the end of the day, they're going to wind up controlling you. And you're going to aggravate. You're going to compound the situation. Uh, so you learn how to, if, if you just kind of stop it and think of it in this concept, you and I, we work every day. Why do we work? Because we're motivated to work. We get a paycheck. Uh, if we're an actor, we're, we've got a reputation. For an athlete, we've got a reputation. Um, that is a motivating factor for us. We have to understand what the motivating factor of our children is. And it's the things they enjoy doing, their iPhone, TV. Their video games. Use those in a constructive way. Control their items and tell them flat out, I don't control you. I can't control you. You and I know in our growing up, every day we would do things that our parents would not approve of. Mm -hmm. Every day. Our children are no different. So we've got to understand the nature of our children and we have to understand that we cannot control them. We can influence them. And that's what we work at. Every parent listening right now who is dealing with one aspect or another or multiple aspects of the laundry list that I cited a few moments ago, again, acting out, it could be the gambit of alcohol abuse, criminal behavior, destructive behavior to self and others, on and on the list goes. Every parent is saying, Vern, if I only had an answer, if there was only something I could do to change my son or daughter. When we come back after a timeout, we'll talk about that. Can you actually... Do something to affect change in them? And if so, what is that? Is it ultimately a child behavior problem? Or is it a bigger problem? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're coming back to the conversation. Vern Tyler with us today from the Hosanna Parent Project and uh, Hosanna Pathways. Again, more information on the web at hosannapathways.org. We're going to get back to more of your calls. We're going to go to Rob in Vallejo. Rob, good afternoon. Come on in with your question for Vern Tyler. Hi, uh, Mr. Tyler. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, Craig, uh, I love listening to you. you. You bring on a lot of good stuff. Uh, Mr. Tyler... Um, I'm a 40-year-old dad, a little background. I, I came from a violent home. Um, I suffered incest and rape. 
Uh, but I have three children. One was just born uh, a couple weeks ago, and I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Um, a seven-year-old is a boy, and he's a pretty good boy. Um, but I'm having problems with uh, my five-year-old little girl. Um, she's uh, a little bit more mischievous, and uh, but she's a beautiful little girl, and I love her. Um, but I, you know, going back to, you know, how we were raised and, and how I was raised, I was raised uh, in a lot of anger. Uh, my parents um, suffered addiction problems, and uh, a lot of that stuff came back to me as a child. And, uh, and I see myself as a parent now. Sometimes uh, I can get into the mold of my dad, who, you know, was a quiet man except for when you made him upset, then he got real loud and real angry and real violent. And, uh, and I, I noticed those tendencies within myself, but, you know, I curb them to the best of my ability. Um, I try to stay as cool as possible, but I'm going to admit, I don't think I do a very good job. And I'm sensing, you know, that disrespect from my daughter coming back to me, and I'm wondering, like, what advice would you have when I'm getting caught in that moment, when I'm feeling that fire come inside of me uh, because my little girl is, you know, doing the wrong thing or um, talking back? Uh, how do I, what, what should be my first response? I don't want to react. I want to respond. And, and, and just a little coaching would be a very appreciated here because I'm, I'm going to be on my way home tonight. And I already know that when I get through the door, and maybe I'm setting myself up for a little bit of failure here, but because I know my little girl and how she can push my buttons, how do I respond when she does start to push my buttons? Let me just uh, uh, give you a little word of encouragement to begin with. with. The emotional issues that you're sensing, those are normal human emotions. So don't beat yourself up over that. The idea you need to do here is work, uh, learn some skills so that you can... Uh, control or manage those times of rage. Um, even those of us that are professional, uh, we become very angry, and we can go into rage. I've got to check myself daily. I'll have situations that arise. Um, uh, you've got young children. Don't wait for your 5-year-old to get to 15 when she has been, in effect, conditioned, allowed, not knowing how to manage these behaviors. Uh, the longer that goes, the more ingrained they become, the more they become a habit to her. You want to find strategies and ways that you can avoid that at an early age. And it's more than just biting your tongue, isn't That's it? That's right. Mean, mentioned about, yes. uh, he mentioned about his daughter you know, knowing how to push his buttons, and I bet he knows how to push right back, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, that escalates. She, and, and she probably enjoys that. Mm -hmm. See, strong-willed kids enjoy That's an adrenaline kind of, a, of an issue. You get into a tit-for-tat and a little kid that can take on an adult and, um, and uh, uh, match up, I mean, that's, that's, uh, there, there's some gratification, human gratification that comes from that, even for a five-year-old. So you've got to learn, you need to learn how to walk away from that. You don't argue with children. As adults, we have to learn that. That's one of the first things I have to teach my parents is you never argue. You don't have to argue. Uh, if you are a respectful person and expect respect back, uh, one of the first things you understand is I can't argue. I won't argue because it's only going to turn into a, a, an angry circumstance. So we avoid that. So, again, in the, in the training that I try to provide, this is one of the key things I work with families. 
is learn how to avoid arguing. Don't let things escalate. Set the, the leadership standard of respect uh, and then expect respect back. Now, we as parents, I think, naturally want to control the situation. We don't want the five-year-old to beat us. And we are willing sometimes to, to again, engage in that tit-for-tat and escalation because we're determined before this exchange is over with that we're going we're gonna to make our point. We're, gonna, we're going to impress our will upon that child no matter what. And, of course, the child knowing that, and as Rob admits, knows how to press his buttons and is going to press right back. Absolutely. When you reach that kind of scenario, when you feel it's starting to escalate, are there times, Vern, when it makes sense to just walk away, to not say, I'm here going to beat you down until I win, but rather to say, until we can have a conversation? I wouldn't say walk away as such. Okay. But yes, you do have to distance yourself. But again, it has to be done in a respectful way. So how do you disengage from that? You know, even with a five-year-old, it can escalate pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. How, how do you, when you feel it starting, you feel that rush coming up inside, and you know Mount Vesuvius is about to blow, how do you disengage from the child without looking as if you're surrendering? It's basically very easy, If again, if you understand the concept. If, as an adult, you are respectful to the child, then you can expect or demand respect back. So if a child starts misbehaving, talking back, misbehaving, or whatever the case, uh, whatever action that might be, uh, or attitude that they're reflecting, um, I just look at the child and I say, honey, I'm not going to argue. I'm going to respect you, and I expect respect back. All right? So can we have a normal, calm conversation about the issue, or do we have to disengage here for a while? Do I need to leave? See, I'm being respectful. I'm not just simply going to disrespectfully leave okay. because then the child is going to say, <laughs> I won. Yeah, uh-huh. I won, or what a disrespectful way to do that. Even a five-year-old understands that. Mm-hmm. But you engage in conversation, and you, if you do have to leave, and many times you're going to have to leave, all right, you leave and say, I'll be back in five minutes, maybe only one minute or two minutes for a little five-year-old. I don't know. So you're going to, to separate, and you come back and say, honey, can we have, now have a good discussion, or do we still need to take some more time? And meanwhile, that's got the child beginning to think in terms Absolutely. of reprogramming the behavior because that's they right. go, wait a minute now. I used to get satisfaction. His daughter probably gets some satisfaction out of pushing his buttons. Absolutely. Now all of a sudden, well, I pushed daddy's buttons. See, that's part of the daddy motivation. Daddy didn't respond. That's the motivation. Hmm. That's the motivation. I don't know what her what Rob's daughter is like here, but she could well love to engage just to show that she is a big girl and mm-hmm. she can handle herself with her adult father. Mm-hmm. That could be a psychological issue that's very profound here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to judge this not knowing the whole circumstance, but uh, that could very well happen. It, it sounds like uh, Rob would be a good candidate for yes. some training. I mean, what parent wouldn't be? They all, we all need it. We all need it. You're not going to do this, and you're not going to change this behavior. He's not going to get home tonight. Take this approach that you've just mentioned and see his daughter make him 180 by tomorrow morning. No, no. And it's see, we've got to. You have to be committed to this, don't you? That's right. The commitment, the long term, and you've got to model it. And you can't wink at it. See, I'm not going to. I'm not going to take this challenge on now. No, no. You've got to be consistent. When they're when our kids bump us with disrespect or bump us with inappropriate behavior, gently bump them back. Honey, we don't do that, remember? Mm-hmm. That shows disrespect. That's not a righteous behavior. Use mm-hmm. righteous. How many times do we ever hear anybody ever use the term righteous behavior? For no. those of us in the church, this should be common. And 
is it important for both parents to be on the same page? Absolutely. Because if one is taking this approach and yet mom still acts out and screams and yells, well, every kid knows if I don't get my way or satisfaction with one parent, I run to the other one. Well, and if it's, if it's an adrenaline thing, you're going to go where you can have get your adrenaline rush. Of course. You're going to go to mom. Of course. Now, you've got a number of factors that play into this. So okay. it's very complicated, but yet it's very simple. All right. I hope at least to some uh, minute degree that's been of some help to you, Rob. Yeah, it has been. And, and whatever information I could get as far as the church in Castro Valley, uh, where you are offering classes. Um, They're doing classes at Neighborhood them. Church in Castro Valley, and you can go to hosannapathways.org to get more information. The podcast will be up tonight, too, as well, and you can always recapture tonight's broadcast on our podcast. The other thing they can go to is the Parent Project uh, website, which is www.parentproject.com. And uh-huh. all of the classes, now I'm the only one that I know of in on the West Coast that's doing the Faith-Based Parent Project. The others are okay. secular. But you'll see all the classes on that uh, on their uh, website, and you can register from their website, too. Rob, I look forward to meeting you, buddy. All right. Thanks for the call, Rob. We're going to take a brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Back to more of our conversation. Vern Tyler is with us tonight in studio. Vern and his wife, Judy, I guess long about in the 1970s, first got involved in foster parenting. Mm Mm-hmm. And that went from uh, a career in banking, as I recall, right, right. Uh, to uh, now foster parenting kids, over 800 to yours and Judy's credit. And uh, and now taking a lot of that experience that you have, and, you know, for the listener, you talk to a guy who's successfully raised not only three of his own biological children who were all involved in, in full-time ministry, but also touched the lives of eight hundred other kids that they help raise, you think, I'm about to hear from an expert. So with that in mind, he's sharing some of the insights. We're talking about um, the um, parent project and changing behaviors and patterns of, uh, of the family of origin and giving you the kind of skills necessary uh, to change the direction of your child's life and the entire dynamic within the family. Back to more of your calls, Misty in San Francisco. Come on in with your comment or question for Vern Tyler. Hi, guys. Uh, I just had an observation and a comment. Um, okay, he mentioned that I believe 98% of people that come into counseling really have extreme issues. And my experience out there in the world and with uh, abusive men, etc., is you're dealing with at least 98 to 99% of people that do not live with honor, are dysfunctional, do not process correctly. So they are all raising these kids, and this is a cycle that's just going on and on and on. And you cannot change those people, even under the most extreme circumstances. I mean, it, it, it can take years and they have to be willing and most people just really aren't willing to look inside so it's you know i would like to actually put a a view out there that a lot of people for some reason aren't comfortable with that i don't know why everyone grows up and just has kids a lot of people should not be having kids we're living in an overpopulated world and the dysfunction and the abuse is absolutely out 
Misty, can I interrupt you here for a little bit? I think I understand where you're coming from. That's a frustration I think that we all share. Uh, but as a human being, a person of faith, I've got to have hope. Uh, and I've got to try to change my world in a positive way. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, now, uh, let me just kind of reinf- uh, reinforce, if you will, one of your points that you made is that people don't want to change. That's so true. And uh, these parents, uh, you know, we've had a couple of calls in here today. I can hear these parents, yeah, they would like to change, but the real question is, will they change? Do they have the will to change? Uh, We can't control people. I can't control people. I can give them information. I can lovingly share with them and encourage them and nurture them. And I hope that they pick up some pointers, pick up some help that will help them not, not only themselves, but the next generation, well, their and families. There's, and there's a fundamental point that I think you're both making here. Number one, I, I, I certainly concur with Misty, and I think a lot of us out there, we we see parents, you know, whether we right. read the stories about what's going on in a family or we watch them, you know, at, at the store and the way that And the I've cared for 800 of those kids. And you think to yourself, <laughs> whatever made that person think that they want to get together with, with a, a member of the opposite sex and procreate? There, there ought to be, a, you know, a law. <laughs> that said, it's going to happen. Yes, You're not going to stop them. You're not going to ever get a point in society that says you have to have a license and pass the test to pre-qualify you for as parent. I mean, maybe in some society someday, should, uh, should Jesus tarry, that that might be the case. But at this point, the reality is, yes, bad people who come from bad families grew up to be bad parents and raise bad kids, and the cycle and the process repeats. All of that said... Many of these parents that you run into start the dialogue with, help me change my child. But that means you've got to change There's the key. And this is, I think, part of what what Misty is is saying. Misty, you're right. Yeah. It really starts with the parent having to change first because they're kind of the initiator of the problem. And again, I want to be fair to parents out there. I know there are some parents out there that say, well, wait a minute. I'm a pastor. We've done all the right things. We've loved our kids and given them everything and tried to teach them all of the, uh, the proper things, and they still went awry. And it happens because we all have free will, Mm -hmm. and we're going to make choices, Mm -hmm. and we're not always going to make the right choices. Mm -hmm. But you also need to be equipped the skills necessary that can help you change some of that direction and dialogue. And you know what? Some parents are going to do their best, and they're going to go to a a program like this, and they're going to learn the skills, and they're going to change things, and the kid's still going to wind up in San Quentin. Yes. It's just going to happen. Mm -hmm. But there's a larger percentage for whom. There's real hope in this, and sometimes it's the only hope that they have. Not to change their kids, but start by changing what you can control. You're not going to control your kids, and you know what? If you admit it deep down, you know that. Right. But you can change yourself. And help your kids change Mm -hmm. by changing yourself. Misty, great questions, great comment. Appreciate it. Appreciate the call tonight, Misty. As we wind down our time, we've touched on, I think, some basic principles here today. There's there's so much deeper that we need to go to. I'm struck by the fact that uh, uh, in one community where the parenting project was put to use, the police had reported that they had received in a one-year period of time from 15 families that got to be the familiar addresses that the police had received 87 phone calls 
from 15 families, and that's an average of like six phone calls from each of these families with domestic disputes and issues going on, the child misbehaving, you know, my son stole my car, my, he hit my wife, that kind of stuff. These families in this community, these 15 families, went through the parenting project, and then they began to apply the skills that they had learned in changing themselves. And from the police department, one year later, here are the results. A year before, 87 phone calls to the police from 15 families. One year later, the same 15 families, four telephone calls to the police department. Now, that says to me that there was something yes. that changed. Yes. And so I think it's, it's indicative of the fact that there is hope out there. The change begins with you as a parent. And to learn those skills, again, more information available at hosannapathways.org. That's hosannapathways.org. There are classes right now taking place uh, here in the Bay Area at Neighborhood Church in Castor Valley. If you'd like to call and say, wow, we need this in our church, how do we get it going? How can we get plugged in? Go to hosannapathways.org or call 844-KID-HOPE. That's 844-K-I-D-H-O-P-E. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.